Let's pray. Father, we just come before you saying thank you. Thank you for your goodness to us. You are the good God, the righteous God, one who is absolutely holy, just, pure, no evil whatsoever, total light. And we are not. So I just ask that you would cause our eyes to see, and that you would speak through your word today. Spirit, that you would be our teacher. God, I confess just how easy it is to to be one who pronounces judgment, to be one who is quick to point out the sins of others and not humble myself and confess my own. So I confess that. And we thank you that you sent your son to die and to free us from the condemnation we deserve. So I just pray that you would help us to see today what you say about judging others and what you have done about those who do. In Jesus' name, amen. What, you're sitting down? Come on. So, today we're going to continue on in our study of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew's chapter 5 through 7, what we've called the What Jesus Says About series. For several weeks now, we've been hearing Jesus speak with unique authority about the issues of our hearts on public things and on private things. He's been speaking to our inner lives. He's been talking about our lusts, our anger, our unforgiveness. He's been speaking to our outer lives, our relationships with people like our spouses or those who hurt us and are are our enemies. More recently in chapter 6, We've seen Jesus get into the so-called religious matters, things like almsgiving, prayer, and fasting. And Jesus takes on how we can use spiritual disciplines, how we can use spiritual practices to try to make ourselves look more spiritual than we really are. He confronts how all of us tend to make sure that our outer world, our outside, is shining brighter than our inner world, our inside. We're prone to practice our righteousness before men. All of us are prone to practice our righteousness before men, yet inside remain filled with unrighteous motivation. So Jesus sets to unmask our hypocrisy, to reveal that the treasure of our hearts is usually ourselves, usually not the people that we give money to, or most importantly, the God we fast and pray before. We treasure what other people think about us more than how God views us. We treasure being known as a good person in the eyes of the world or as a good Christian in the eyes of the church. So often I know that I am far more enchanted with what other people think about me than what God sees. 
So again, Jesus tackles this head on as the first verse of chapter 6. The first word in that verse is beware. And he tells us to be careful of this propensity in our hearts toward hypocrisy. Jesus wants us to care most about what God sees, about what his Father sees, and to know the eternal value of heavenly treasure in comparison with earthly treasure. He calls us to a contented life contented life that is defined by the kingdom, that is ruled by a good and caring Heavenly Father, more than a life of anxiety, a life of just continuous accumulation that is defined by the values of this world. So according to Jesus, hypocrites are those who care more about the opinions and values of men than the opinions and values of God. Hypocrites, whether the public knows it or not, are people who are mastered by something or someone else other than God. Something else rules them. So Jesus desires that we order our lives differently and that we would be ruled by a different master. And every single one of us will be ruled by something. That is a fact. The question is, what will we be ruled by? Sexual lust enslaves us to our cravings. Money and possessions enslaves us to our things. Unforgiveness enslaves us to what has been done to us and robs the present with the past. Anxiety enslaves us to fear of the future. And hypocrisy enslaves us to the fear of man and the opinion of other people. So disobedience to what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount actually leads to a life of bondage to a life of enslavement instead of a life of freedom. So Jesus is offering a way of life under his reign, a reign that is encompassed with sacrifice and under the care of his Father that is liberating, that would liberate us and free us from these things that enslave us. The authority that he speaks with, the demands that he makes, is not abusive, is not oppressive. It's a rule of blessing. The rule of blessing. Remember the Beatitudes? Blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. The way of life in this sermon is the way of blessing. So it's good news. It's gospel news. It's good news for us. As chapter 4, before the sermon started, in verse 23 said, Jesus came teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. That's what he's doing. He's telling us things that are good for us, that will bless us. But our big problem is that we think we should be able to define what freedom and blessing and the good life looks like. We want to be our own authority. We want to be our own authority. We want to be the kings and queens of our lives. But as created men and women, our life is lived best when lived within the boundaries of the Creator. So Jesus desires that we would kill our self-centeredness and our hypocrisy by repenting. By repenting and coming under his authority and the care of his Father. So Jesus isn't done dealing with the H word. He's going to do it here again. We now begin a new chapter, chapter 7. And he deals with the same problem of hypocrisy. We see that right in verse Let's read this section of Scripture. Matthew 7, 
1 through 6. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. This is God's word. So this passage contains some of the most popular and simultaneously most misused and abused verses in the entire Bible. Before we unpack this passage verse by verse, I want to address what Jesus is not saying, what Jesus is not saying. I can think of at least three ways that we misapply this text. We can use it as a defense mechanism. We can use it as self-justification. And we can use it to endorse the idea of absolute non-judgmentalism. So first off, judge not can be used as a defense mechanism to avoid correction. We can use it as an excuse when someone points out a problem in our life. But notice that Jesus isn't saying this to the crowds to give them an excuse to get out of being rebuked and corrected. That's not what he's doing. He's calling us not to judge someone else, not to judge other people. The emphasis is on the person who is on the giving end of judgment instead of the receiving end. So he's not giving us the permission to use don't judge me as a coping mechanism, as a technique to dodge a sinful area or sin in your life. Secondly, judge not is abused as a mantra for self-justification. We say things like, I can do what I want to do. No one can tell me otherwise. I get to live my life the way that I want to. Jesus even says, so you can't judge me. Who do you think you are? It's not Jesus' point. We don't get to justify foolish behavior by playing the Jesus card on people. We don't get to rationalize our sinful actions and attitudes by using what comes out of Jesus' mouth here when he's clearly condemned those very same sins elsewhere. We'd love to have Jesus in our corner to make us feel better, but he's more concerned with your self-denial and self-justification. Thirdly, judge not is interpreted falsely when it's used to endorse a philosophy of absolute non-judgmentalism. This is implicit in the immediate context of the Sermon on the Mount. It's interesting that when Jesus says don't judge, he's doing it right when he's making all kinds of judgments. He's been defining a particular way to live that's different than the world and different than even the religious people of the day. He's been making pronouncements about the traditions religious leaders held. He was making pronouncements about the Ten Commandments and the nature of what sin is. So he's been making judgment calls. That's what Jesus has been doing. 
when he says don't judge, he's making a judgment. So he's not throwing out discernment and making all opinions on social and moral or theological issues equally valid. Not saying that that's okay. This couldn't be any clearer than in verse 6 where Jesus gets all non-PC, non-politically correct, and calls certain kinds of people dogs, pigs, due to how they treat sacred things. Context. So there's a kind of non-judgmentalism that's foreign to what Jesus is endorsing here, and we live in a culture that preaches to us that the only judgments we can make are ones about ourselves. The self can make judgments about the self, but you cannot make judgments about other people. I'm making judgments about me. That's okay. If I try to put that out on somebody else, that's not okay. You decide what's right for you. I decide what's right for me. Everyone is happy. That's not the kind of non-judgmentalism that Jesus is recommending. He's not saying that we shouldn't rethink sin. He's not recommending flabby truth that will basically flex around any given situation or any different kind of person or community. He's not telling us to replace um, our moral backbone with like a moral Gumby. I don't know if they have Gumbies anymore, but they used to. So he's not abolishing a standard of judgment. He's addressing the way in which we apply it. He's not abolishing that there's a standard of judgment. He's addressing the way in which we apply it. He's not saying we can't confront people on their issues. That you can't correct or rebuke or name things for what they are. He's saying the way we do it matters. In these first five verses, Jesus is warning us that we should not use a standard for ourselves that is far below that which we hold others to. He's cautioning you and I, maybe even closer to threatening us, that you must be prepared to bear the weight of same standard you set for others for you. Let's look at the first verses here. Well, let's look at all these verses, but let's look at the first two first. One and two. Read them again. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So look at that first word, judge. According to one scholar, the word for judge here can mean both to analyze or evaluate as well as to condemn or avenge. Judge, you analyze or you evaluate something, you make a judgment, or condemning, avenging. The sense here is more on the second meaning than the first. Jesus is warning his followers neither to be overly critical of other people nor to be the kind of person who's quick to criticize. Don't be overly critical of other people. and Don't be quick to criticize. The problem is, we as human beings, we're not wired for that in and of ourselves. We don't want to embrace that kind of life naturally. The opposite comes naturally. We love judgment. We love judgment, especially if somebody else is getting the judgment. We relish the opportunity to point the finger. Johnny Calvin, that's what I call him, He describes this human tendency in his commentary on this text. and This is what he says. These words of Christ do not contain an absolute prohibition from judging, but are intended to cure a disease. 
which appears to be natural to us all. We see how all flatter themselves, and every man passes a severe censure on others. This vice is attended by some strange enjoyment, for there is hardly any person who is not tickled with a desire of inquiring into other people's faults. Disease, strange enjoyment, tickled. I thought those words were interesting and very right for the text. We all have this strangely enjoyable disease that takes pleasure in recording the sins of other people because it makes us feel better about ourselves. I can be so wicked. Not the only one. You hear something about someone that's bad, rather than mourning for their sin, actually a perverse delight kind of comes inside of you, seeps in. And you may not go so far as to gossip about them. Hey, did you hear about blah, blah, blah? You may not name their sin to their face and point it out to them. You just may walk away feeling. inside, tickled. You're, you, you are happy that that happened. That's sinful. Notice another thing. See how the first verse speaks in a passive way. Judge not that you be not judged. And so it raises the question, judged by whom? Judged by whom? Who is Jesus saying we will be judged by if we're judgmental? Is he saying other people? Is Jesus saying, be careful how you judge other people, because other people will judge you back in a similar way? I think partly, yes, that's what he's saying. One of the metaphors that verse 2 is implying is taken from the marketplace. Markets use scales to measure out a portion that suits the price of a purchase. We do this at Safeway all the time. Go to weigh our tomatoes. But, Back then in the marketplace or maybe in the street or whatever, if you give out at your if what you give out at your tomato stand is known to be very meager or very expensive, it's likely that when you go across the road to get bread, they will return you the very same favor. In the same way, if you're a person who is known for being critical, you will receive criticism in return. It's hard to plead for mercy when you are a vindictive person. Kind of like the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do to you. This is something different. The new revised standard version puts it memorably. The measure you give will be the measure you get. The measure you give will be the measure you get. Are you willing to face the same standard of judgment that you dish out on other people? Are you willing to face the same standard of judgment that you give to other people? Jesus is reminding us to only give the kind of sentences that you are willing to stand yourself. Don't judge lest you be judged. Don't judge others with a different standard than you use for yourself. Don't grade yourself on a curve where an 85% is going to give you an A and then treat everybody else that they got to get to a 90 to get an A-. It doesn't work that way. Judge yourself by the same standard. The teachers of the day would have been familiar with this. This isn't one of those 
you say this, but I say to you this, moments for Jesus that he's done here in the Sermon on the Mount before, they knew these kinds of proverbs like the one Jesus uses in verse 2. So the issue wasn't lack of knowledge, it was lack of obedience. The problem wasn't their ignorance, it was their hypocrisy. I don't doubt that one of our biggest problems in the American church, and to be clear, one of the biggest problems in my heart, and I genuinely mean it, is this, that we agree with all kinds of doctrine, we know all kinds of Bible verses, but we don't obey. Knowing Jesus the teacher can be easy. Following Jesus the master is another thing altogether. But the passive verb here is not primarily about the impact of criticism upon our relationships with others, but the impact of criticism upon our relationship with God. The main answer to the question, whom are we judged by in this passage? Whom are we judged by is God. The reason Matthew doesn't record the divine name of God here is because it was normal for a Jewish writer out of respect to not utter the divine name. So Matthew uses a common device that they call the divine passive, where God's name isn't mentioned explicitly, but is implied. So Jesus is reminding us that all of us will face the judgment of God. None of us, no one in this room will escape the judgment of God. No one will escape the judgment of Jesus' Father. And God is not a respecter of persons, but will mete out the sentence that's deserved. His judgment will always be rendered appropriately, according to what matches his law and what matches his character. And this is sobering, and it's supposed to sober us up in at least three ways. Number one, each of us will die. That's scary. That's not the scariest. We will die, and then we will see God. The lawgiver, the judge, face to face, the one who sees through all of our actions that we've ever done, that we've ever done, and every attitude, every motivation, every thought during the action that happened. Sober us up by knowing his name. Number two, when we act as the judge and jury toward others, we are taking his place. We are acting in the role that is his alone. So when we do that, we're playing God. The book of James speaks to this issue as well. James 4, 11 to 12. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother, ju- brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? So when we judge, we play God. Who do you think you are? Should sober. Number three, notice how the measure of your judgment of others affects the measure of your judgment before God. The measure of your judgment of others affects the measure of God's judgment of you. Not exactly sure how this works, but it seems to be that Jesus is saying is that this is true. And it seems to be in accordance with other parts of the Bible and, and even the book of Matthew. We've heard a few Sundays ago Jesus say this, if you forgive others their trespasses, 
your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. You don't forgive other people, I will not forgive you. That destroys all kinds of my theology, but that's what it says. And later on in Matthew, Jesus gives a parable that speaks to unforgiveness and the way in which we mete out judgment upon other people. Matthew obviously is familiar with this and wants this to get across to us. A very frightening parable. Matthew 18:21 to 35. Not going to comment on it, just going to read it. Matthew 18:21 to 35 to help us see that it seems that how the measure of your judgment of others affects the measure of God's judgment of you. Matthew 18:21 to 35. Then Peter came up and said to him, "Lord, How often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? I love that. Peter's like, seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children, and all that he had in payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me. I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow Servant, as I had mercy on you, and in anger, his master delivered him to the jailer. Some translations say tortured him. Until he should pay all his debt. So also, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother. Very sobering. Obviously, some of these parallel passages kind of making this point are more negative. There's a positive one, a positive way to say the same thing. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. So in some way, your judgment, be it merciful or strict of other people, in the way in which you generously or miserly exercise forgiveness impacts God's treatment. So, in light of this, before you criticize others, before you're about to criticize somebody else, stop, maybe ask three questions. Number one, is the judgment I am about to render appropriate? Is the judgment I'm about to render appropriate, does it match the law and the character of God? Number two, am I taking the position of God in the way in which I judge? Am I trying to judge their thoughts? the intentions of their heart. 
Number three, am I willing to face the kind of criticism I am about to dish out? Am I willing to face the kind of criticism I am about to dish out? Can I, can I handle the scale of judgment that I use upon other people being brought down upon me by God? If not, maybe you, maybe I have to Next few verses. Chapter 7, 3 to 5. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So Jesus is being kind of funny here. He's using hyperbole. He's using exaggeration to show the ridiculous ways in which we cast judgment. He's using an example of something that would he would be that he would be very familiar with as a carpenter. So he's talking shop, talking specks, logs, sawdust, timber, stuff that Jesus would be very familiar with. I'm sure Jesus got dust in his eye more than once. I'm sure Jesus felt his back strain and hurt after picking up a giant piece of timber or log or whatever it was, heavy beam, woke up the next day hurting. So the imagery here is intentionally dramatic. Specks are small. The Jerusalem Bible calls them splinters. The Revised English Bible calls it sawdust. And logs that Jesus makes mention of are big. They're really big. So they're like they're like a, a beam across a building. Big. So Jesus is using stand-up comedy that stings here. And it's interesting. Some of the best comedians get us to laugh at serious things. They get us to laugh at serious things. Or particularly potent social issues. So this isn't like a light-hearted laugh. This is uncomfortable funny. I think you know what I'm talking about. So that's what Jesus is doing here. We need, to, we need to step back and laugh at ourselves a little bit. See our ridiculousness. How quick we are to see other people's suitcase of baggage when we got a freight train of baggage dragging behind us of our own. He's encouraging us to self-criticism before others criticism. So again, he's not saying you should never confront someone. He's saying to make sure to log your own backyard before you start going after your neighbor. The problem is our sight is skewed. Our sight is skewed. We can't see clearly. In verse 3, Jesus' diagnosis is that we fail the eye test. We take tweezers, we take tweezers to pull out the tiny speck of a splinter of a piece of sawdust in someone else's eye. When we should take a chainsaw to the beam that is inside of our own. The difference here is interesting. We, are, we see so clearly, we see so clearly, right there, I see it. It's a, it's a speck, it's a piece of sawdust. Get it out. So clearly, but we cannot see can hardly even notice or notice the beam that is in our own eye. Jesus is saying that humility is to be our biggest priority. 
think it was John Stott who said, pride is your greatest enemy. Humility is your greatest enemy. You should remember that as we go at assessing other people's problems. Jesus basically says verse 3 in a slightly different way in verse 4. Verse it's like, we're so happy to help others see their problems. Here, here I, here, I can help you with that. Let me, let me help you. Let me, let me take that speck out of your eye. Just here to help. Just here to help you. But instead of grabbing tweezers, instead of grabbing tweezers, we tend to actually grab the axe. How can we be so quick to do eye surgery when we are usually the ones who are blind? So often, the other person may have a legitimate, may have a legitimate temporary blinding issue. And yet we think we can see it when we are the ones who are permanently blinded by something so much larger than our desperate need. In verse 5, Jesus, like the good surgeon, gives us strong remedy. He calls us hypocrites. He says it like it is. Start with some humility, he basically says. First, take a look at your own heart. You can't see other people's errors clearly when you're blind to your own, so start with yourself. Sure, we may need to be a maid occasionally with a Swiffer duster, kind of. Get that sawdust out of there. But don't do that without starting as a lumberjack, as a logger. It's going to go cut down the redwood tree inside of your own soul. There's something else here, too, that Jesus assumes in verse 5. The word brothers. Brothers. Then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So Jesus is not saying that once you get saved and deal with your sin, that it's okay that it's cool to judge everybody else on the outside. He's not saying that. He's speaking to those on the inside, the brothers, the ones who are his followers. We shouldn't expect unbelievers to act like Christians. In fact, we should be quicker to judge those inside the Christian community than those outside the Christian community. Think about how Jesus related to sinners. And again, sinners as if, oh, the sinner's over there. Talking about sinners. He didn't come excluding the worst kind of people, but including the worst kind of people. He's more concerned with pointing out the problems of the religious than the irreligious. He went to dinner parties with tax collectors and sinners, and he poked fun at Pharisees. In fact, his most abrasive, his most abrasive and condemning speech was toward those considered religious people, not those considered sinful people. So Jesus knew that it's way harder to get self-righteous people to see their sin than unrighteous people to see their sin. So when Jesus says brothers, he's letting us know that once we've humbly dealt with our sin, we can gently correct our brothers and sisters. Always the first part first. Once we've humbly dealt with ours, we can then correct our brothers with theirs. Paul, following Jesus, said the same thing when speaking to the Corinthian church. In Corinthians 5.12, he says, 
It isn't my responsibility to judge outsiders, but it certainly is your responsibility to judge those inside the church who are sinning. So judgment begins with the house of God, but it must always be done humbly with great gentleness. So the emotional force of verses 1 to 5 is that though we can correct our brothers and sisters, we must never be quick to. That would be the first impulse. Look at verse 6. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. So it's as if verse 6 comes at us to keep us from abusing Jesus' words. It's like Jesus knew that people would take his words and run with them so that they would never have to hear the truth or experience rebuke or correction. Jesus knows the human heart well. He will not allow us to remain defensive and hard-hearted. He knows that if some hear the truth and are called to repentance, they will lash out. So the proverb in verse 6 is like a slap in the face for those who would arrogantly act as if Jesus' words meant that they could never be called out on their stuff. Here Jesus calls certain kinds of people And in this culture, it doesn't get much worse. Dogs and pigs are considered unclean by the Jewish people and were despised. They're also wild, not like tame household dogs. Um, pigs can be brutal. So these animals are placed in stark contrast between holy things that are sacred and beautiful things like pearls that should be prized. So who are the dogs and the pigs to which Jesus refers? And why does he refer to them this way? There are several options. Could this be like a racial slur toward unbelieving Gentiles? No. One of the earliest interpretations took this verse to bar unbaptized people from taking communion. Seems like quite a leap. Others seem to take this verse as a caution to the abuses of the do-not-judge-me crowd. That definitely seems like a part of it, which is basically some of exactly what I'm saying. But the emphasis of this verse is not on race or even on everyday interpersonal relationships because the proverb hinges on something that is consecrated and highly valuable, like a pearl. So Jesus is commanding his disciples not to give what is something that is holy, and sacred to those who would defiantly reject it, to those who would treat it as valueless, trampling it underfoot, and then turn and attack the one who gave it to them. And since it's a proverb, it could be applied to several things, but the most holy and the most sacred, the most wonderful thing in the world is the good news that Jesus is The good news of the kingdom, the gospel. There's, there's nothing of greater value. There's no more significant and important message than those words. And for those people who would persistently reject the gospel, there is a time and a place for the ones who carry the gospel to move on. Could it be that Jesus was thinking of the application of this verse when he sent his disciples on their first mission and told them, Whoever does not receive you, nor heed your words, as you go out of that house or city, shake the dust off your feet. Truly I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that nation. 
So we know that Jesus isn't excusing fear. He's not excusing our lack of boldness in proclaiming the gospel. We know that that's the fact. Heard it said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Persecution will come. We may even die for the sake of proclaiming the gospel. But Jesus said, Matthew 10, when you come to a city, and out listen, take off the dust of your feet and move on. It's going to be worse for them than Sodom to reject Jesus. Even fearless Paul, who was regularly persecuted, turned away from some who rejected the gospel in Acts 18. Talks about how some of the Jewish people who were blaspheming the gospel said, blood be on your hands. But there's a time when you stop cramming the gospel down someone's throat, and there's a time when you stop telling someone any kind of truth if they won't listen. The key here is wisdom, prayer-soaked wisdom. You're not going to find an absolute principle for your evangelistic relationships or for relationships where you are engaged in conflict or correcting sin. You're not going to find like the exact principle. Here's what I do in X situation. That's why we need the Holy Spirit. Why we need wisdom from other people who love Jesus to help us. So with the good news of the gospel in mind, think back on our main theme. Which according to the title, what Jesus says about judging others. How does Jesus handle judgment? How did Jesus live in relationship with sinners and those who deserve to be judged? Judged? How did he relate to the worst kinds of people, committing the grossest of sins. Jesus is the one who could have come into the world, held all of us up to the standard of God's judgment, found us wanting, and let us fall under God's condemnation just like that. He would have had every right to do that. To treat us as dogs and pigs, wallowing in our own darkness, and left us to get what we deserve. That's what we deserve, sinners for a holy God. Jesus is the only one who measures up to God's standard of justice. He is the only person who has ever kept the law of God perfectly. And what does he come to earth to do? Comes to save. Comes to save us. There are two spots in the Gospel of John that show us something about the kind of judgment Jesus brings. One kind of judgment Jesus brings is to those who think they can see to reveal that they're actually blind. Those who think they're clean, everyone else is dirty. Those with their fingers always pointed outward to someone else. Those who can dish it out but don't take any responsibility themselves. Self-righteousness is the epitome of spiritual blindness. And it's the worst kind of blindness because it's being blind without knowing you're blind. John 9 speaks of this kind of judgment that Jesus came to bring. Verse 39 to 41. So in the context of after a man, the man who was born blind. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. Verse 38. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Jesus said, 
For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to them, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, We see, your guilt One thing about knowing you're blind or being blind is that you need to learn to trust someone to help you see. You need to learn to trust someone to help you see. You need to hear someone describe to you what the world looks like. You need to have someone guide you as you walk. And if you don't realize you're blind and get help, you're just going to stumble around lost. Jesus exposes the self-righteous for what they are. Spiritually blind and helpless, thinking that they see. Isn't it interesting that the judgment of God for us in the gospel does not fall upon you for something you did, but falls upon you for someone, Jesus, the one that you never trusted. This is clear in John 3, which brings us to another kind of judgment that Jesus brings. John 3, the great passage, for God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. But whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Verse 17, for God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So these verses show us that the ones who will receive the judgment And the condemnation of God are the ones who love their own darkness. The ones who do not trust the light of the world. The kinds of people who love judging others and exposing them, but never want their wicked hearts to be exposed. They trust themselves. They see themselves as the standard. Everyone else is falling short of it. The world's problems always lie anywhere else but inside of their own heart. They don't believe they need a Savior. Someone else needs judgment, not me, not I. Therefore, as verse 16 says, they are condemned already because they have not believed in the only Son of God. And the good news is Jesus did not come to condemn. He came to save. The Father loves sinners so much, He gives His precious Son for them. So what's so freeing about the Gospel is that you don't have to hide the wicked person you really are. You don't have to try to be better than everyone else. You just have to be a blind person on the side of the road calling out, saying, help, and you will see. Jesus will never, ever condemn a believing sinner. He's in the business of bringing spiritual healing to blind people with faith. In some ways, we make too big of a deal out of sin, not a big deal enough. At the cross, Jesus took the condemnation of every person who knows that they have gigantic 
good news of the gospel is that Jesus did not come to give you what you deserve. He came to give you what he deserves. The measure of justice that God could have justly used against you as a sinner, he placed on Jesus. Jesus takes as his own Jesus takes as his own the pronouncement of guilty that sinners deserve so that they can have as their own pronouncement the pronouncement of God of righteous that Jesus deserves. At the cross, Jesus puts a little different spin on the words, if I may, in chapter 7, verse 2, something like this. For with the judgment you should have had pronounced on you, I will be judged. With the measure the Father should have used against you, will be measured to me. We can only see ourselves rightly. We can only see others with the eyes of Jesus rightly when we trust the good news that Jesus for us. How can we judge and condemn others when we follow the one who took our judgment and our condemnation? The power to be that kind of person comes from that doesn't just come from the threat. There are threats. You've got to read the whole Bible. You've got to listen to verses like that and go, that's scary. And then you've got to receive the biggest news in the world, what Jesus has done, and let that liberate you. I deserve that condemnation. I deserve that judgment. And he takes it. So that should liberate me. That should free me to be the kind of person that Jesus calls me to be. So we turn now to the Lord's Supper, to eat his body, drink his blood broken for us. And we do this not merely as a symbol, but to remind us that as real as the cracker, as real as the grape juice that we're going to taste, so real was the Savior's body and blood given for you. God's justice has been fully satisfied. The penalty has been completely paid. So quit trying to pay it yourself or trying to make other people pay. There is no condemnation. There is no final verdict of guilty awaiting those who are in Christ Jesus. Zero. None. There's only a feast. The loving Father. We'll live forever with one another, experiencing grace upon grace. Let's remember this. of ages cleft for me let me hide 
from thy wounded side which flows be a sin the double cure stay from wrath and make me pure not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy laws demands could my zeal no respite know could my tears forever flow all for sin could not atone thou must save and thou in my hand I bring simply to the cross I cling naked come to thee for dress helpless look to thee for grace foul I to the fountain fly wash me Savior or I die While I draw this fleeting breath, when mine eyes shall close in death, when I soar to worlds unknown, see thee on thy judgment throne, rock of ages cleft for me. Let me hide myself in Thee. Let me hide myself in Corinthians eleven twenty three to 26. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this. same way also he took the cup after supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this as often as you drink it so Jesus we hide ourselves in you we experience mercy thank you help us 